The following episodes include some offensive and dated words read from police reports and newspapers circa the 1970s. This season also deals with child abuse, so listener discretion is advised. Nature can be as unforgiving as a cynical heart. Perhaps because the Warren Dunes had claimed so many souls already, that set the stage for how the tragedy months later would be perceived. On January 1st, 1973, as Richard and Eileen Doolin and their five children visited its icy shores on New Year's Day, 10-year-old Jennifer walked about two feet from the edge of the pile of broken lake ice that had been deposited onto the shore like piles of broken concrete shoved into a mound by a tractor at a construction site. Suddenly the ground cracked beneath her. Her mother had already jumped in after the girl as another visitor turned around to witness the father running toward the edge. Don't, the man yelled. He tossed his keys to a friend and yelled for her to get to police as he ran toward the family's other four children. All three, father, son, and daughter, perished in the frigid water of Lake Michigan. Despite onlookers tossing in ropes that none of the victims could hold onto for long enough to be pulled to safety over that six feet of accumulated ice at the water's edge. The surviving children saw everything, and I can't imagine how difficult their lives have been after bearing witness to such a catastrophic event while being completely helpless to do anything as their family members perished. The FBI is looking into Catherine's case. And right now, the way it looks is they're going to be pursuing charges against all of you. Um, that's why they came down and they interviewed your mom and phone. tried to give her an opportunity mm. to save you guys the, the trouble. Mm. And she, for whatever reason, has chosen to let you guys sink the ship. Nine months later, another family headed to the Warren Dunes State Park from the Chicago area. Three cars filled with three adults and seven kids, ranging from six to 18 years old, made that 77 mile hour and 20 minute journey, past Indiana Dunes National Park at the halfway mark on the trip, all the way into a different time zone three states over, once you curve around the bottom of Lake Michigan. An article in The Innovator, a Governor's State University school paper, read as follows. Anna and Robert Davidson, both 27 of South Hermosa in Chicago, left the hassles of the city, work, and school and headed for the Warren Dune State Park in Michigan to take the kids on a last outing before the summer ended. They arrived at the dunes around 3.30 in the afternoon. Minutes later, everything changed. Michigan State Police received a call at the New Buffalo Post at 6.35 p.m. from a concession stand worker. 
Visitors that day would hear a broadcast over the park radio system asking them to look out for a little African-American girl, six years old, three foot eleven inches, sixty-one pounds, wearing a white blouse, blue shorts, and white plastic shoes. Her name was Kathy Davidson. Kathy's parents said that when they arrived, they parked a car on the roadway overlooking the lake, and the children dashed out of the car and headed toward the creek that emptied into Lake Michigan to play. They said this happened around four o'clock. The parents set up their picnic lunch and then called the children back to eat. They said all of the children returned except Kathy, so the family began to look for her but couldn't find her. Even after they approached the concession stand and asked them to put out a broadcast over the public address system. The trooper didn't question the parents any further at that time because the primary concern was organizing the search as quickly as possible. This search would last a period of days and balloon in size and scope. The Michigan State Police summoned officers from the Buffalo, Benton Harbor, and Niles posts, as well as a helicopter from the Grand Haven post. Berrien County Sheriff's Department officers and emergency patrol assisted, along with the Chickaming Township PD, Bridgman PD, Three Oaks, Weasel Township, and a number of off-duty police officers from Berrien and Indian counties. Lake Township, Lakeside, New Troy, Riverside, and Sawyer Fire Departments all assisted, in addition to civilian groups including the Civil Air Patrol and concerned CB radio groups from as far away as Detroit, Northern Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. American Red Cross volunteers as well as park rangers and campers from Warren Dune State Park also helped look for the little girl. Around 150 searchers had descended on the area very shortly after the initial calls made, and by 9 p.m. that night there were between three and 400 people searching the area, all in an organized grid pattern from shore to highway and from miles north and south of the park itself. By 1.30 a.m. that first night, the entire area had been gone over. By the 4th, three days later, while the search continued, the outlook was bleak. No sign of the little girl other than a pair of underwear found in the area that her parents couldn't even identify as hers. Now before we get any further, let me see if I can help by describing the area to you. Warren Dunes State Park is made up of 1,952 acres along the shore of Lake Michigan. There's miles of shoreline and hiking trails and a camping area, a beach, natural dunes, a parking area, and in the very southern end of the park, where the Davidsons were that day, Painterville Creek empties into Lake Michigan, right near where the property ends and the residential area begins. The family was essentially picnicking in the southernmost area of the park, right at the edge of the park, before the residential area begins. From the very first minutes and then for days, while the search continued, officers began questioning people in the park, on the beach, and then the residents in the homes in the surrounding area. The beach itself had been full of people the day that Kathy went missing. Numerous people stated that no six-year-old African-American girl had even been seen on that southern area of the beach in the park where her parents insisted that she and her siblings had run down to play. Because of the possibility that the little girl had somehow been grabbed and shuttled off the property by a stranger in a car, the following days were spent investigating every known pedophile and sex offender in the area, as well as every house nearby, in case she'd been taken inside. Nearby homeowners allowed their houses and properties to be searched. 
As tips flowed in about every weirdo in the tri-state area, police followed up on each one, leaning on their law enforcement partners to interview them until each one could be ruled out. Everyone who looked even remotely sketchy on the beach that day was checked into. It was repeatedly pointed out by beachgoers that a white man absconding with a little black girl wouldn't have gone unnoticed, but police still looked into every lead, however tenuous the threads might have been, and men in particular of all races were looked into with a very suspicious eye. Days later, police were still coming up empty. They had nothing. Not a single person on the beach, with the exception of her own family members, even saw the little girl. After the 4th of September, the search was called off. A local news article reported that the area had been searched four or five times, and any further searches would be of no value. It was now time for the police to circle inward and further question the family, to see if there was anything else that they could glean that might lead them in the right direction. After all, it was four days after the little girl went missing, and they still had not interviewed Kathy's siblings, who were there with her that day, playing right in the area with her, some of whom were teenagers and surely had pertinent information. The children had been sent back to Chicago while Robert and Anna remained. Officers contacted them and several friends of theirs in the parking lot of the administration building of Warren Dunes State Park around 7 p.m. on the evening of the 4th. At that time, Mr. Davidson had a list of places that he wanted the police to search, including the sewers and storm drains at the beach house area, as well as the private house just to the south of the park, near where they said they had been picnicking. He also told them to ask a camper named Debbie about a little girl that she had seen, matching the description of Kathy. The officer informed the group that they had already talked to this family, the Washingtons, and that the clothing description that they'd given did not match the description of the clothing that the family had given them. A friend of the Davidsons who'd been standing in the group and listening suddenly got angry and said, Oh man, they got to her. Then he threw his hat on the ground and stormed away. At this point, the officers mentioned that they had learned that Anna wasn't Kathy's biological mother and that they wanted to speak to her. Robert Davidson turned to motion to a woman standing nearby. He introduced them to Portia Davidson, his ex-wife, but he said he didn't want to answer any questions about his past, and he instructed the police not to question his ex-wife about his past because it had nothing to do with Kathy going missing. He said their job was to find his child, and that's all he wanted them to do. The officers wondered aloud if there might be an enemy or someone from his past that could have a motive in this case. To this question, Robert Davidson laughed, and then he insisted that it was nothing from his past. Doing their best to keep the lines of communication open, the officers backed off the touchy subject and asked the Davidsons about Kathy. Her parents said Kathy was a bright and intelligent child. She was familiar with the park and the area where they set up their picnic because it was a favorite spot of theirs. Because they didn't find her shoes, the officer asked if she would have taken them off to go into the water. At first they agreed that she would have taken them off, but... Then they said maybe she would have worn them in the water. Anna Davidson was then asked about the pair of underwear that the searchers found. She said Kathy had dressed herself, so she wasn't sure if they were hers or not, but they did look like a pair that belonged to Kathy. The officer then directed some questions to Portia Davidson, Kathy's mother, in an attempt to get her into the conversation. 
but Robert and Anna kept interrupting the questions and answering for her, so she ended up staying quiet in the background and observing. In his notes, the officer describes Anna as cool in the beginning of the interview, but later she sat down in the open car and rocked back and forth. He noted, however, that she did not cry. Because there was a group around them this entire time, the three-way conversations were impeding the officer's ability to perform a proper interview, so he invited the Davidsons back to the post for a proper interview the following morning. Unfortunately, this would become a pattern in the ensuing days. Every time police tried to question the parents, a group of people would be there, injecting themselves into the interviews, making it impossible for the police to get the information they needed. Portia Davidson, Kathy's mother, showed up at the post the next evening as requested. Robert and Anna never showed up. When they were asked why, Robert said they were too busy at the park. This bothered the police, so they asked Portia about her ex-husband. Was there anything that they needed to be concerned about? She said he did have a record of violence, but she didn't believe that he would hurt his daughter. Later that day, one of the local township police chiefs had come to the state police post with some information that he felt was relevant. He said that he had arrived on scene at 6.30 p.m. on day two and assisted with the search throughout the night. He related how different groups involving hundreds of searchers went through the park, but it's what he saw the parents themselves doing, or rather not doing, that concerned him. He noticed Anna and Robert Davidson around 2 or 3 in the morning sitting in a brown station wagon with a white couple. They were all laughing and drinking beer. They had an alcohol bottle in the car too, which he thought was whiskey but he couldn't say for sure. He said they didn't appear to be grieving parents. The incident that he saw occurred by the registration building and he had been parked about 30 feet away. He couldn't hear what they were saying but described them as yakking and popping cans until 5.30 in the morning. He didn't see how the white couple left the area, but Anna and Robert were sleeping in the station wagon alone the next morning. His main beef, though, wasn't really the drinking. What bothered him was that none of these people, not the Davidsons or their friends, had assisted with the search that evening. Two days after the initial request, Robert and Anna still had not come down to the police post for the requested interview. However, Mr. Robert Dunn, who was the Illinois State House representative in their congressional district, sure did. Apparently, he had received a complaint regarding the lack of effort and police cooperation in the search. I can picture this interaction, and so can you if you close your eyes. A politician and a law enforcement officer facing off across a desk both men with their respective jobs to do, both concerned with public perception related to how they do those jobs. Mr. Dunn was patiently advised of the laundry list of resources that had been utilized for Kathy's search and investigation. Apparently, he left satisfied, but before he did, he offered his assistance, if needed, and the police took him up on it. They took that opportunity to mention the difficulties that they'd had in getting the Davidsons into the office for an interview. Representative Dunn said he would be happy to talk to Mr. Davidson. Later that very same day, 
The representative called and advised that Mr. Davidson would cooperate, but he didn't want to leave the park, where he was surrounded by friends, which was kind of the problem in the first place. So that really wasn't much help to the police, but during this call, they asked the representative for assistance in locating information from the Chicago area regarding the Davidsons' divorce and their past. They needed some years on the ground. Robert Davidson's mother called back later in the day to pass along some information. This grandparent tried to paint Portia as uninterested in her children, other than she was, quote, in it for the money. At this point, having been given an opening to again interview Robert, they contacted him at the trailer where he and Anna were now living at the main gate of the parking area. Somehow they had managed to get their hands on a travel trailer and were living on the park property. During this interview at the trailer, Robert proceeded to parrot the talking points that the previous caller had mentioned, noting that Portia was not a responsible person and had no concern for their children. Interestingly, he followed these accusations up by saying that there was no hard feelings with his ex-wife and he didn't think the child would be with her now or even with her mother. He said they all got along, but he hadn't seen her for some time prior to this. He noted that Portia had an older son by a previous marriage, in addition to Kathy and her sister, who was three years older than her. When pressed, the only incident from his past where Robert said he could have made an enemy was around 1969, while he was in prison. In his words, from the report, quote, he had a run-in with a homo and thinks this subject is now in New Orleans. He stated this subject wouldn't know where he lives or anything and discounted the incident. When the officer asked the name of this prisoner so that police could check into it, Robert Davidson couldn't come up with a name. Mr. Davidson then said he was not involved in any street gangs or gang activity because, quote, he gets along good with the gangs and is respected by them because he's an ex-con and he works with them. Robert was then asked to recount the people he recalled seeing at the beach that day when Kathy went missing. He said he didn't see any black folks on the beach during the time Kathy was missed, but he did remember seeing a heavy-built black woman and child around nine years old the next day walking on the beach. Officers asked him who was the young white couple he and Anna were sitting in the car with in the early hours the night after Kathy went missing. He said that he didn't know who they were. They were just a teenage couple that had sympathized with them. At this point, Robert defensively circled back to Portia, saying that when Kathy was born, Portia had filed for divorce. The officer patiently redirected him back to the day Kathy went missing. What they needed from him, they said, was to tell them what happened that day, starting with a ride over from Chicago. Robert said their picnic plans were spur of the moment, and they'd driven to the park in three cars. He said Kathy, Anna, and himself had come in the green Torino. A young family friend who had once lived with them drove the reddish-orange Ford, and Marvin Bobo, Anna's brother, drove the small Renault. He didn't know for sure who was in the other cars, but he did give a list of the other children's names. All he could remember from that day was that the children got out of the car and went down to play by the small creek while they set up lunch. He said he did observe people in the area, but he really wasn't paying attention and he couldn't describe anyone. On the same day, Portia Davidson was interviewed as well, but she spoke to the police at the station. She said that Kathy's sister lived with her and Kathy, and Kathy was currently with her father for the summer. 
He did have both children for two years, but Kathy's sister came back to live with Portia around Christmas time. She said Robert was abusive in his manners and conversations relating to her, their mother, and that the children really didn't like that. According to her, it wasn't physical abuse, just the way he talked, so that's why Kathy's sister wanted to return home to Portia. She said that Robert got angry when her daughter wanted to come back to live with her, and when he dropped her off at the house, he told his daughter that she'd never see Kathy again. This had all been relayed by Kathy's sister to Portia at the time. Portia advised that Kathy was his favorite, and he loved her very much. She said that he had a record of violence, but that Robert would never hurt Kathy intentionally. She was sure of it. She said that he had only married Anna last year, and she seemed to be a nice lady and took care of the children. She had several children from a previous marriage. She said that Robert had a police record since his teenage years, but no enemies that she knew of. She didn't believe that he was in any gangs or groups, but she did wonder about some of the children that Robert worked with, although she didn't think Kathy or the family were exposed to any of the students at his school. When the officer asked her point blank if she had taken Kathy, she said no, of course she didn't have her own child snatched to get back at her ex-husband. She gave birth to that child and she'd go through legal proceedings to get her back. She'd been trying to get full custody, but her attorney had died in a plane crash and she had just gotten another attorney to look into the matter for her. When asked how the little girl would react around water, Portia said Kathy was not the type to wander off. She did like the water once she got used to it, but to get her in, you had to take her by her little hand and lead her in. She didn't think that she'd just go in the water by herself. Portia couldn't think of anything in the past that would be a motive or come up with any idea about where Kathy might be. I don't want to think about it, she said. And the officer asked her what she meant by that. She said some weirdo might have taken her daughter and assaulted her and she couldn't bear to think about it in that way. There was something that made her suspicious of Robert, though. Portia thought it was strange that he didn't seem too sure of who went and got the children for the picnic on the day in question. When they had talked, all of them in the group that day, about how the children were called back to eat, she said... Robert seemed like he wanted to say who went and got the children, and then he looked like he was going to change the names he had mentioned, and then he appeared to be unsure who went for Kathy. He had to look at Anna for a response to that question, so Anna gave one of the names of the kids. Portia felt that Robert should know who went and got who, and that exchange bothered her. Police asked her how she learned of Kathy's disappearance, and Portia said, Robert just came to her mother's house, walked right in, and said that Kathy was missing, real rough, and got her mother all upset. She felt that he could have been nicer when he broke the news. He wouldn't say what happened, just that Kathy was missing. After that, she tried calling the police post to get information, and she kept getting a weather report because she couldn't figure out the right area code, since this had happened in another state. She tried all night, and eventually she got a hold of Sergeant Snyder early Tuesday morning and learned that there were no new developments but Robert wasn't sharing much with her. On this same day after talking to Robert and then Portia, police interviewed Debbie back at the Warren Dunes campground. Now Debbie was the woman who had allegedly sighted a little black girl the day Kathy went missing, the one that Robert Davidson wanted them to speak to. Yes, this is that same Debbie that when they were told the clothing description didn't match, his friend said the cops had somehow gotten to her. 
but police had already spoken to her a couple times. This would be their third interview. Debbie said that around 7 p.m. she was standing by the entrance to the woman's restroom at campground number three, which was across the park from where the Davidsons had been. And she observed a small black female child standing in front of the bathroom door. She asked the child if she wanted to go inside, but received no response. So she opened the door and the little child went in. Debbie then left the area and did not see where the child went after that. She gave the following description. A small black girl, approximately four foot tall, about six years old, wearing a white top and blue shorts with her hair in braids. She told the trooper that she'd seen the picture of the missing child and that it was the same girl she'd seen in the restroom. She said she was positive she remembered her face. Debbie said that at the time she saw the girl, she didn't even know there was a girl missing. She learned about it around 8.30 that night. It was at that point that she contacted the park rangers and they quickly left to look around the restroom area. A short time after that, two men in plainclothes contacted her. They talked with Debbie and wrote down some information. She thought they were police officers because they had a radio in the car and lights in the back window. However, they did not identify themselves as police officers. Debbie said that she and her friend searched the park for the missing girl during the night, and around 6 or 6.30 in the morning, they were walking in the dunes and heard a voice from the top of the dune say, I'm up here. When they ran to the top of the dune, no one was there. She thought someone might have been playing a joke on them. Debbie said she spoke to another black family that weekend who had camped near the restrooms and they told her that they had not seen the missing child. Debbie said she saw the children inside their car and none of them looked like the girl that she had seen at the restroom. The trooper who took this interview noted that it took place at her campsite in his patrol vehicle, but during the entire interview, there was a group of six to eight black males around the vehicle interrupting his conversation with Debbie with their own questions and making comments about the interview in the background. Also, two black males had tape recorders and were taping the interview, sticking their microphones through the open car windows. Robert Davidson was present during this interview as well. The officer said Debbie appeared nervous and uneasy the entire time. When the trooper drove her to the restroom for further questioning about where the incident had occurred, the group of black males followed them. While there, another black male questioned her, stating that he was from Operation Stick. He said they were trying to show malfeasance of duty on the part of the state police and park rangers. He insisted that not enough was being done because the little girl was black. This same man, who stated he was from Operation Stick, asked the trooper to identify himself and his badge number and insisted that he state his name into the tape recorder. He repeated that police were not doing enough to search for the little girl because she was black, and the police report notes that he was actively trying to get Debbie to say that no one had been interested in her story about the little girl that she saw. He was doing all of this and recording it during Debbie's police interview. A friend of Debbie's was interviewed at this time who said that he saw the girl near the entrance to the bathroom as well, and he saw Debbie open the door. In his version, he and Debbie had been searching the dunes and they were calling out Kathy's name and heard a voice from the top of the dunes say, Mama, but when they reached the top of the dune, there was nobody there. After this strange interview, to follow up on this witness statement, the troopers called in the two rangers from Warren Dunes to ask them about the initial tip that they had received from Debbie, the very first one. They said that they contacted her on the evening of the 1st at her campsite, the same day Kathy went missing. They interviewed her and several friends. 
Debbie stated that she had seen a small black child at the restroom and then identified the picture of the missing victim. She told the rangers that she thought the little girl was about three, but gave a different clothing description than that of the missing victim given by her parents. The rangers then located the only black family in the campground and learned that they had two small black female children who they had let go to the bathroom by themselves without their parents while at the park. The rangers believed that the child seen by Debbie was one of those children. These were the Washington girls. Now going back through all of these notes regarding the little girl at the restroom, it does appear that Debbie's story changes as far as the description. The first person who contacted her was given an age of around three, wearing a white top, possibly blue shorts, and hair and a ponytail. It was right after that that the Washington family was found. Another witness who had been questioned in the area around the same time said she saw a little black girl in the campsite with braided hair and a white top, but the shirt had figures at the top. It was noted during this witness statement that the missing Davidson's child's hair was described by her family as cornrowed, and her white top was solid and sleeveless. The third witness had seen two young black children with an adult female who they thought was the mother. One child is described as thin, four foot and bushy hair and two pigtails and wearing light blue pajamas. The other child was described as heavier. In Debbie's other statement done on the 8th, she describes the girl as around six, not three as originally mentioned. She describes her wearing a white top with sleeves to the elbows and blue medium length shorts. Kathy's parents had advised that her shirt was sleeveless. Kathy's hair in this second statement is described by Debbie as a ponytail that originated from the top of the head and went back. In this interview, she was, quote, very certain of the clothing, description, and hair, neither of which matched the description given by Anna and Robert Davidson. At this point, the police had pretty well ruled out the little girl at the bathroom as being Kathy. They believed that she was one of the little Washington girls. By the 8th, the newspaper was reporting that Anna and Robert had, quote, abandoned their work and studies and taken up residence in a house trailer in a desperate attempt to find their young daughter. Robert and his wife, Anna, both 27, have set up the small rented house trailer near the entrance to the lakefront park where they plan to continue their search for their six-year-old daughter, Catherine. I plan to remain here until I find my daughter, Davidson said in the article, which also noted that he took leave from his job as a social worker with the Chicago Association of Retarded Children at 153 West Garfield. Even then, according to this newspaper report, although the search parties had dwindled steadily, seven volunteers, a handful of policemen, and a state helicopter were still at work. This same article said, quote, the rented trailer is costing $28 a day, and the Davidsons, who were enrolled at Governor State University in Park Forest, have suspended their educational plans until the search is over. I can't think about my job or school until I find her, said Davidson. In between all this back and forth with the sightings of the Washington girl, police were still getting tips regarding other children in the area who were missing, which they had to cross-check against as well as tips about suspicious males in the area. Whether they were random males driving around or already known to police, they paid every one of them a visit and checked all their alibis for the time Kathy went missing. 
the chief of the township police was again interviewed because the previous night he had encountered a group of 20 to 30 black searchers on Tower Hill Road in the residential area just south of Warren Dunes Park. They were walking down the middle of the road chanting, holding sticks and clubs, and wouldn't give way to his police car. He stopped them and gave them a warning. About 15 minutes later, he observed another group of about 15 exit the area and enter the park. A short time after that, he observed yet another crowd, so he stopped to ask them what group they were affiliated with. No one in the group would answer. They just stood and stared at him. He drove off, and a short time later, yet another group was observed. When asked what group they were with, they also would not answer. He circled back to the previous larger group, and someone in the crowd yelled, quote, We are the grass, or ass in parentheses, the report says, eliminators. Another male in the group yelled, We're the honky eliminators. At this point, an older man in the group told the younger searchers to shut their fucking mouths. Eventually, all the groups moved out of the residential areas, back into the park, and remained quiet for the rest of the night. The next day, Robert Davidson phoned in a tip to police from a woman who contacted him. Police got in touch with her and she relayed her story. She said that she had read in the papers about the missing child and proceeded to call eight different Chicago police agencies without results. She then called the Chicago Tribune and they gave her Mr. Davidson's number. Her family was at the Indiana Dunes State Park on August 31st, just before Kathy went missing at Warren Dunes State Park. Indiana Dunes is about halfway to Warren Dunes on the route that the Davidsons would have taken from their home in Chicago that day. The tipster said she and her family were there with four children and two friends and they had arrived around one in the afternoon. The children swam and one of their six-year-old twin girls played at the edge of the water. A man came down the beach and stood behind the child but didn't say anything. He just stood there and stared at her for six to eight minutes. Their 14-year-old daughter was playing with a friend further down the beach and they started back toward the man and child. He looked at the two coming toward him and then noticed the parents were watching. Then the man came up to them and, according to this woman, started to make silly nonsense talk about the weather and the beach and so on. The woman said it was like he'd been caught and was now trying to make small talk. While he was talking to them, their other six-year-old twin woke up under the beach umbrella. The woman said, quote, You just had to see the look on his face when he saw the second child. It was like the man was watering at the mouth. She said the man said something like, Oh my, another little child but it was the way that he said it that made her concerned. He continued pointing out buildings and referring to the Michigan beach, which the woman took to mean Warren Dunes. Anyway, she said he just wouldn't leave. She said that he finally said goodbye and wished them a nice day. She watched him walk up to the beach house and go into the men's room. She said they waited a short time and then walked up to the restroom and saw the man talking with her son and a friend in the washroom. She couldn't believe it. As she approached the group, she heard the man ask her son if they were his parents, and when he said yes, the man moved away and stood by his car. When she asked her son what he had wanted, the boy said, some Kool-Aid. The woman moved toward the car to get his license plate number, and she said that he moved around to the front of the car and stood in front of the plate so she couldn't read it. Her son told her that the man had wanted to know if they would be at the park tomorrow, which would have been September 1st, the day Kathy Davidson went missing. The boy said, no, we won't. Right there in front of him, the woman warned her son and his friends about men like that 
and she even used the word creep loud enough for him to hear. Still, she said he would not leave the area. Later, when she started to make sandwiches, the man changed his clothes into slacks and a shirt and left the area. She said that her family had left around 7.30 that evening, and they didn't see him in the area when they left. He was described as a white male around 28, 5'10", 180 pounds, light skin and no tan, despite the fact that this man had said he was at the beach every day. He had light, brush-cut hair, no mustache or sideburns, no tattoos, and a slightly rounded face and body, although he was not chubby. He was described as neat in appearance, in his light shirt and slacks. He wore a tight black swimsuit when he was on the beach. The family felt as though he was, quote, simple talking but not stupid, and was described as having a Truman Capote type voice, which would go into a high pitch when he talked. So, yeah, that reeks of pedophile central. And there were plenty of leads like this that police followed all around the area. So many, in fact, that I started to wonder how we all make it out unscathed every day in our day-to-day lives with so many creeps living among us. Law enforcement was tracking possible suspects as far away as Minnesota and California just based on random tips called in about other creepy types. Meanwhile, on the 10th, Anna, who had still not gone into the post for a formal interview, called saying that she wanted to see an officer because she had some information. Both she and Robert, who was also going by David Davidson for some unknown reason, were met at the trailer home at Warren Dune State Park. They said that about three weeks prior, a friend of their son was outside their residence in Chicago when a black male walked up to him and asked if he lived in that house, and he pointed to the Davidson residence. The friend replied no. The black male asked if a David lived there, to which the boy said yes, and he was told to go into the house and get him and tell him to go to Sue's house where she would talk to him. Apparently, some of the family members called Robert Davidson, David Davidson. You'll learn in future episodes that these two have a way of changing names a lot. So anyway, the Davidsons say they walk outside and nobody was there. Robert, a.k.a. David, said he didn't even know anyone by the name of Sue. Then the Davidsons fell back into their normal redirection, changing the subject to Kathy's mother, Portia, again. Robert said his mother had called and that Portia had been taking up a collection in the Chicago area for a missing child, and Anna said this could be verified by calling someone at the Fellowship Baptist Church. The Davidsons said that Portia's sister was telling people in various bars that Anna and Robert never brought Kathy to Warren Dunes Park, but did something to her before they arrived there. They felt the police should check this information out. While the officer was taking this down, a man named Robert Blue was also taking notes and asking questions. He said that he was the news editor for the student publication at Governor State University and that there were, quote, heavy emotions at the university and in the Chicago area concerning the missing girl, as information was rumored that police were not following up additional leads. Mr. Blue was told that all leads were being checked out completely, but very few tips had been received that went directly to Kathy going missing. He was further advised that the entire park had been searched completely, to which Mr. Blue replied, 
That's impossible. The park is too large. The trooper repeated himself. The park was completely covered by searchers more than once. Mr. Blue said he had the names of two eyewitnesses who told him that they'd seen Kathy since she turned up missing and positively identified her picture. He asked the trooper why they hadn't been interviewed. The trooper asked for the names and addresses of these witnesses so it could be determined if they had in fact been questioned, to which Mr. Blue replied, I, uh, I left that information back at the university. Blue was advised to contact the post with the information as soon as possible. Nowhere in the report does it note that Mr. Blue ever called police with any information regarding these alleged witnesses or ever made contact with them again. I did a little digging and found an article by Mr. Blue in The Innovator, the school paper. I'd like to read it to you. It's titled, Where is Kathy? Abducted or Missing I put this question to one of the Michigan State Police investigating the disappearance of Kathy Davidson in the Warren Dunes State Park since September 1st, 1973. He replied, I don't know. I don't know if she's lost or if someone took her from the park. The answer to this question, as of this writing, is still a mystery to the Michigan State Police, the FBI, and this particular trooper. The fact that there are over two miles of highway and hills between where Kathy's father last saw her and where two eyewitnesses first saw and let Kathy into a woman's bathroom did not seem to strike this trooper as being reasonable grounds to suspect abduction. In this particular area of the state park where the family stopped, there is also a small stream, not deep enough for a six-year-old to drown in. However, it runs through the wooded area surrounding the beach and the trooper thought it would be a waste of time following it for possible clues of Kathy's disappearance. There is no way a six-year-old could have climbed up all those hills all by herself, he said. The attitude of the officials in Michigan conducting the investigations from their office is summed up as follows. All leads have been completely checked out, and that is all they can do. Yet a little black child just vanished into thin air 15 minutes after she entered the state park. Why did these officials call off the search only 24 hours after Kathy disappeared? Trying to write the story about Kathy and not feel that if it had been a white child lost, the investigation would have been conducted differently is very hard to do. The area adjacent to the state park is like a page out of a resort magazine. In fact, it's just that. With summer and permanent homes in the too-much-for-most-black-folks-to-afford income bracket, Many of the white residents in the area have shown much concern for the welfare of Kathy. In fact, it was a white person who contacted a relative of the family immediately after hearing Kathy was missing. This makes the suspicion of abduction more than just suspicion. The eyewitness identified Kathy before she even saw the picture of her, and she felt that someone must have brought Kathy from the highway to the woman's washroom. Kathy may be found tomorrow or she may be lost forever in yesterday, depending on what the authorities do to find her today. If what they have thus far is any indication of maximum effort on their part, they indeed have done all they can. Out of this whole affair, one single fact stands stripped naked of all pretense of things are getting better for black and poor people in this country. If you don't have a lot of money, 
when you get into trouble and need help, don't call the authorities, call your friends. To all black people in particular who answered the brother's call with money or sympathy, write on for the darkness. That last bit, write on for the darkness, it was in all caps. Okay, so a couple things. Listen, I will be the first to admit that still in this country today, 2019, there is often a vast disparity in how white and black or brown-skinned victims are treated in the media and in the justice system. Same with rich versus poor. Entire podcasts are done that elaborate on this topic, and a great deal needs to be discussed, acknowledged, and done about such disparities. What I am about to say does not negate any of that. However, there is something I think it's very important that we all do, regardless of race, when we're assessing whether a story or article is credible or might just be riddled with inaccurate and clearly biased statements. The first thing that we should not ever do when discussing an ongoing police investigation is assume police aren't doing something simply because we are not privy to it. I can tell you from my own research that, in every single case that I've covered, police were busy behind the scenes doing all manner of shit that the general public was not aware of. And in every case, there was someone, usually many someones actually, who believed police either did something wrong or were purposely not doing what needed to be done. Guess what? It's not their job to fill you in on what they're doing because they're actually pretty busy doing the shit you're complaining about that they aren't doing. And to top it all off, what plays into this is that they generally cannot push back on the falsehoods printed in the newspapers and repeated on TV. They have to take it on the chin and press forward. In this article, the author, Mr. Blue, made many statements that were factually inaccurate and posed them as fact to the reader. Now, I won't go into the types of people that do this sort of thing or that perhaps there are people right now in the Oval Office that do the exact same thing. We won't get into that right now. I'm going to just start with the thing that aggravated me the most as a writer, and that was this sentence. The attitude of the officials in Michigan conducting the investigations from their office is summed up as follows. Now, the phrase from their office, while underlined, is also a really passive-aggressive and snarky way to suggest that police are sitting on their asses, eating donuts, and doing nothing. Mr. Blue said police called the search off after 24 hours. That's false, and if he'd been following the articles of his local journalistic brethren, he'd have known better. The police didn't suspend the search after 24 hours. It went on for days, by water, by air, and on land. A great deal of time and resources went into searching for Kathy Davidson, almost all of which didn't include help from her own family. This writer misrepresented the sighting that police had already ruled as erroneous through thorough investigation. The writer said it was an actual sighting, and he went so far to say that the eyewitness felt that someone must have brought Kathy from the highway to the women's bathroom, something that never even came up in the report anywhere from the witness herself and appears to be made up out of whole cloth. 
which begs the question, why the hell would a suspect who just took a child from a public location bring that child back to the same property and just leave her in front of the bathroom, standing alone, before somehow managing to take her back again? Come on. That makes zero sense unless you have oatmeal where your brain should be. The writer suggested that the trooper thought it would be a waste of time to follow the stream through the wooded area for clues when, in fact, that whole area was grid-searched on day one, and then more than once. And you know, his whole waxing poetic about the area Kathy went missing from being, quote, the too much for most black folks to afford income bracket, fell right in line with the rhetoric that Mr. Davidson himself and the group that had flooded the area in support of him, walking the streets with sticks and bats, were cultivating. If people are trying to direct you off in different directions, it kind of sends up a red flag on that, especially if they're not being very cooperative. Kathy wasn't being found because she was black. That's the narrative that they were pushing. Nothing could have been further from the truth. They were sitting in a car with another couple drinking and laughing and That doesn't sound like a distraught parent to me, especially on the very first night that your child's gone missing. But this would not be learned for decades. In fact, Kathy wasn't going to be found. She's still missing today. Can you just tell us where she is so we can recover her and give her the proper burial that she deserves? That little girl not being found had absolutely nothing to do with the color of her skin. The kids had to have seen a lot more than what what they're telling. Stay tuned.